This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One argument behind legalizing marijuana is to reduce the black market. So far, Colorado and Washington have had very different experiences in this regard. That's according to journalist Tom Wainwright of The Economist. He recently wrote about the landscape of legalization. He also has a new book about the multi-billion dollar international drug trade. It's called Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel. And Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. You cite authorities in Colorado and a researcher in Washington to say that legal sales in this state account for about 70 percent of the marijuana sold. But in Washington, it's basically the converse. It's only 30 percent that is legal there. So still more marijuana being sold illegally in Washington. What do you attribute that difference between Colorado and Washington to? Well, the two states have come up with slightly different ways of regulating this business. And I think they help to explain some of the differences that we've seen. In Colorado, you guys started off with relatively low levels of tax and a relatively high availability of the uh, the drug. Whereas in Washington, they sort of did the opposite. They started off with higher levels of tax and they regulated or, or rather licensed far fewer dispensaries. The drug was much harder to get hold of in the first place. And that seems to partly explain what's going on here. What you see in Colorado is that about 70 odd percent, as you say, of the market is now um, in the hands of legal regulated businesses. Whereas in Washington, it seems that most of the trade still is in the unregulated sector. Now, it's important to be clear, not all of that is organized crime. Quite a lot of that is the unregulated medical marijuana sector that they have there. Hmm. But nonetheless, it does mean that in that state, you know, a minority of the business is under regulation. Um, And this is a bit of a problem for them, I think. It it raises questions about how their system is working. Either way, they, they raise two different and interestingly different ways of managing this new drug. Indeed, its availability and how it's taxed. So essentially, the tax on marijuana in Colorado is 28 percent. It's 44 percent in Washington. And you're saying that explains some of this. And what that means is that in Washington, a gram of marijuana goes for about 25 bucks. Here in Colorado, it's $15.00. And I guess the black market price is about $10 a gram. So in short, would you say that taxation has a lot to do with the the existence of the black market or not? Well, it does, because, of course, if you're deciding, you know, where to buy your marijuana, if you're a regular user, then you've got a choice. At the moment, on the whole, the black market is still somewhat cheaper than the legal market in both Colorado and in Washington. Right. But what what you find, though, is that the quality, if you like, the potency of the stuff that you're buying is much, much lower on the black market than it is in the legal market. So if you look at the concentration of THC, which is the, the stuff that gets you high, in the illegal market, the stuff that's smuggled over from Mexico has about 6% or so THC on average. Whereas if you walk into a dispensary somewhere like Denver, you tend to find that most of the stuff they're selling there is nearer 18% or thereabouts. So even if it's a few dollars more, if you work it out kind of dollars per unit of THC, how much you bang for your buck you get if you like, the legal market is much better value. And for this reason, the drug cartels are finding it rather difficult. For them, it's a real problem. They've got this big new competitor, which is outdoing them on uh, value for money and also on the whole range of products you get. That There's a whole extra um, side to the business there, which is, of course, this new edibles market, the drinks market. 
all of these new things that you uh, you see now in the legal market that you didn't previously see organized crime offering. You write, in fact, that Colorado's legalization has taken a bite out of organized crime. The Border Patrol says it seized the smallest amount of marijuana in at least a decade on the southwest border last year. It's according to an analysis in The Washington Post that cited the Border Patrol. Um, would you say then that drug cartels truly are hurting? And, and if so, would they be looking towards you know, other drugs instead of marijuana to you know, keep their businesses going? Well, I think it is hurting them, definitely. I mean, the the report you mentioned in the Washington Post was a a really interesting bit of analysis, and it confirmed a lot of the stuff that we've been seeing anecdotally already. There are a couple of bits of evidence that I think are interesting. One is that there's been an increase in the number of really large seizures of cannabis that we found on the Mexican side of the border. And what this suggests is that the cartels are finding it harder to shift their products north of the border. They're finding it harder to sell it in the United States, and so it's mounting up on the Mexican side. Another thing that we've seen recently is the cartels using their drug smuggling tunnels to smuggle migrants instead. And from an economic point of view, this doesn't make much sense. These tunnels are very, very expensive assets, and the migrant smuggling business is far less profitable than the drugs business. Hmm. So you have to ask yourself, why are the cartels risking these assets on a relatively low-value business? And the reason, it seems, is that the drugs business is worth a lot less than it used to be to them. So... It does hurt them in this sense. But as you say, there is a risk that they're going to get into other things. And what we're also seeing in Mexico at the moment is that some of the farmers who used to grow marijuana are now turning to growing opium poppy instead to make heroin. And of course, that's a worrying development. And that is partly what's fueling the big heroin epidemic that's going on now in the States. So there is a risk that legalizing Uh, Although it is hurting the cartels, it could drive them into other lines of business, and that may not necessarily be a good thing. And yet it seems difficult to argue that Colorado and Washington alone could affect the international drug economy so much so that the cartels are hurting. So is the legalization of medical marijuana, which touches far more states... Is that at play here as well? Because that's been going on for a much longer period of time. I think both things are happening. I mean, if you speak to police officers in Colorado, one of the things that some of them point out is that they've seen an increase in the amount of marijuana leaving Colorado's borders, both in, you know, in cars going along the highways and also in the postal service. The um, postal system has been registering more marijuana being sent to other states than before. But I think you're right that the medical marijuana business in many other states is a huge supplier of the grey market, if you like. California in particular has a notoriously badly regulated medical marijuana system. And it seems that there are many growers in parts of California who are... uh, sometimes uh, unwittingly or sometimes perhaps partly wittingly supplying the grey market in other states. And this could change because California is having a referendum later this year in November on whether to regulate uh, recreational marijuana alongside medical marijuana. And if they do that, I think there's a good chance that they might get round to regulating it properly. But there is, uh, I think, uh, a tendency at the moment in some medical marijuana states to really uh, let these drugs go beyond their borders. And that's helping to fuel the market in the United States and helping to do the cartels out of that valuable business that they used to have. Mm. We've talked about the black market, which, as we have said, has taken a hit in Colorado, less so in Washington. What about use? Uh, Were you able to find out whether 
in states that have legalized recreational marijuana, use is going up overall. Is it that the same number of people are just using more? Are new people being introduced to the drug? It's a good question. And I think the honest answer is it's going to be a few years before we can give a, a really good answer to that because it's the experiment's only been going for a couple of years. And as you know, data on this kind of thing take a long time to be published. So we're really going on, you know, pretty limited data. But it seems from what we can see so far, it's safe to say that there hasn't been an explosion in use anywhere. In Colorado, it seems from what we can tell that usage among most people has gone up by a few percentage points, not by a huge amount, but if anything, it has gone up somewhat, including among people under 21, who, of course, in theory, shouldn't be able to get hold of it at all. Mm. So that's something that people should be concerned about. One other thing that I think is a worry on people's radar is in this edibles market, because many people who sell marijuana talk about this as a a sort of exciting new way to uh, push the product to people who previously haven't tried it. And you can see how if you're not someone who wants to smoke a joint or to, you know, smoke a bong or whatever, you may be a bit more tempted to try it if you can get it in an infused product like chocolate or like a drink. And so this is something that I think states that choose to legalize need to be very careful about. And they need to look at what countries have done in markets like tobacco, where, for example, here in Europe, all kinds of flavoured tobacco, so menthol cigarettes, that kind of stuff, are banned on the basis that they might be more likely to appeal to children. And it seems odd to me in a way that uh, although in many states menthol cigarettes are banned, you can still buy, you know, chocolate marijuana and marijuana-infused gummy bears and this kind of thing. I suspect that states which legalise in future may take a somewhat tougher line on these kinds of flavoured products, which could appeal more to children and and to people who wouldn't otherwise have taken up the drug. Tom, let's take a quick break and then ask what uh, this says about the war on drugs, uh, because you reflect on that in your recent article, but also in this new book, Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel. Tom Wainwright is with us of The Economist. Back in a moment. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's return to my conversation with Tom Wainwright of The Economist and author of the recent book, Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel. Some of Wainwright's reporting on the drug economy brought him to Colorado. Tom, I suppose the not-so-subtle subtext of what you've told us, that Colorado's legalization of recreational marijuana has made a dent in the black market, um... That that could point to the notion that legalization has been more effective than the war on drugs. Is what you're saying here, legalize everything and the black market, the cartels will disappear? Is it is it A equals B? I don't think it's ever quite as simple as that. But I think it's true to say that what's going on in Colorado represents a, a pretty unusual success in this war on drugs, which so far has not been very effective. If you look back 20 years or so to the last time the United Nations held a big summit on the drug problem, the uh, the slogan of that summit was a world without drugs, we can do it. Now, fast forward to today and you find that consumption worldwide of marijuana has gone up by about 50%. Consumption of cocaine has gone up by about 50%. Consumption of opiates, including heroin, has almost trebled. 
And this is in spite of spending billions of dollars and sacrificing thousands of lives in countries like Mexico. We're not really seeing very good results. And then look at a place like Colorado, where after two years of this recreational marijuana experiment, it seems that the legal market has taken 70% or more of the business over. I think this is a big deal. And cartels like, say, the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico rely on marijuana for about half of their revenues. So if you can suddenly take a big, big chunk out of that, then it really represents a a bigger blow than any other policy has previously been able to manage. The question you pose about other drugs, I think, is a difficult one. And it's one that countries should take drug by drug. But there's an interesting example from Switzerland where, believe it or not, they've legalized heroin. Now, It sounds rather crazy, you know, it sounds like an extreme measure, but what they've done is legalisation of a very sort of conservative, doctor-led sort. And what happens there is that heroin addicts are given um, prescriptions of heroin by the state for free. And what they found this does, is there are two impacts of this really. One is that it stops the addicts from stealing so much to feed their own habits and it makes them less likely to overdose, it reduces the harm to them. The more interesting thing, though, is that it's reduced the number of new addicts. And the way this works is that many of those addicts who are getting the prescriptions are themselves dealers because they deal in order to fund their habit. So if you give them a free prescription and and monitor them, Mm -hmm. then they they stop dealing the stuff themselves. And they found that the, the number of new people taking up the drug has reduced dramatically as a result of that. But this notion of taking it drug by drug is interesting. You're not saying, yes, legalize everything in one fell swoop. And nor are you saying it... Uh, you know, le- legalize entirely. There, there can be, I guess, gradients. And um, speaking of gradients, back to the tax issue and marijuana in Colorado, you spoke with the head of Colorado's Department of Revenue, that's Barbara Brawl, and she talks about the possibility of taxation in Colorado that could evolve from where it is today and that could even be based on how potent marijuana is. That is THC-based taxation. Yeah, that's right. And I think that if that would be possible, I think it's a technically rather difficult thing to do for various scientific reasons. But I think if, if that's possible, then that would be a sensible thing to do. The reason is that at the moment, as you know, in in Colorado, marijuana is taxed on the basis of the price. In other words, they stick a percentage on top of the retail price. And that's fine as far as it goes. But what it means is that you find that the really strong varieties cost about the same as the really weak varieties. And partly for this reason, what you see in the dispensaries in Denver is that the strong varieties tend to be far more popular. And this is one sort of side effect of legalization that people are less happy about. The legal stuff on the whole tends to be stronger than the illegal stuff. And the idea is that if you were to tax the drug based on the THC potency, you could make it a little bit more like in the alcohol business, where in many countries, uh, strong liquor like whiskey or brandy or vodka or whatever is taxed more highly than wine, which in turn is taxed more highly than beer. Um, And I think if you were to do that, then it would potentially help you to direct consumers towards strains of marijuana that are a bit less potent and perhaps less harmful. Um, Mm. And in in Uruguay, they're doing something a bit like that. Uh, They've got a much more tightly regulated system in Uruguay in which the government is going to approve three uh, sort of government approved types of cannabis. It sounds rather odd, but that's the way they're going to do it. There are going to be three different types, a kind of weak, medium and strong variety uh, priced accordingly. 
Um, so I think a THC tax might actually be something to look at in future. It could help to push people towards the weaker, less harmful types. And let me say that Uruguay became the first country to legalize recreational marijuana. Is it possible then that states moving forward with this, the legalization of recreational marijuana, um, are best to set taxes at first fairly low, snuff out the black market, and then when it's gone, jack taxes up uh, because at that point there's not another market to turn to? Or is the black market flexible enough that it could make a return? Well, this is a dilemma, really, that countries and states face. Uh, you can have very high taxes, and that might dissuade people from buying the drug, which is good in various public health ways. But if the tax is very high, then I think it's going to be a help to the black market, because, of course, the black market products will be relatively better value. You can do the opposite, and you can set taxes very low. That's going to make life difficult for the black market, but you may encourage use. So this is the dilemma that they face. And in places like Uruguay... They're actually setting the tax level quite low to start with, because what they're most concerned about in Uruguay isn't really consumption. They don't have a very big problem with marijuana consumption in that country. What they do have a problem with is organised crime. The Paraguayan mafia is being a, a big problem in Uruguay. So I think it depends a bit on your situation. But yeah, as you say, one option is to start off with very low taxes in order to get rid of the black market, to crush the criminal organisations. And then once they're out of the picture, you can afford to raise those taxes. And there's an interesting precedent there in the alcohol market. That's exactly what happened after prohibition was lifted. Ah. They started off with low taxes on alcohol, got rid of, you know, Al Capone and, and the mob. And once they were out of the picture, they could raise the taxes a lot. And they did, you know, in the decade after the lifting of prohibition, taxes went up something like 400% in the states. So that would be one option. It's something that states and countries could consider doing. You mentioned earlier that there are some questions that can't be answered right now because not enough time has passed, um, including the long-term trend of marijuana use in places that make recreational marijuana legal. Um, it strikes me that there are also many other social questions and even health questions, particularly in young people, in children, that are, I guess, immediately unanswerable. Is is that what you're finding I think that is true. I mean, there's a lot of research going on all the time um, investigating this possible link between marijuana use and mental illness. And the research there is still developing. And I think while that research is still being done and while anything is still unclear, the only sensible advice is to be extremely cautious, um, especially because it does seem that there's reasonable evidence that in a minority of users, uh, it does help to develop dependence. Something like 15% of past month marijuana users in the States uh, meet the criteria that doctors use to, um, uh, to describe people as being dependent. Um, and another interesting thing that you see is that the market seems to mirror the markets for alcohol and tobacco in the sense that about 80% of all marijuana consumption in the United States uh, is carried out by about 20% of all users. In other words, a minority of users are responsible for the vast majority of consumption. Mm. And this is like in alcohol and tobacco. It, it's characteristic of a, a market of an addictive substance. So I think people should be careful. And, and it's important to be clear that the argument for legalizing marijuana isn't that it's perfectly safe, so let's legalize it. It's that actually this is you know, a potentially harmful substance. And it's for that reason that it should be the government and not the mafia that's in charge of regulating and selling it. 
We have about 30 seconds. Tom, do you think big business will get into the marijuana industry? Um, it's, it's, it's a mom and pop thing, you know, at the beginning. I think they will. Yeah, I think that's certainly the lesson of history. We saw in the 60s and 70s, big tobacco was interested in the in the business. And now there's evidence that alcohol firms are getting interested too. This is a potentially a gigantic business for them. At the moment, it's still a taboo, but that won't last for long. So I wouldn't be surprised if in future we start seeing, uh, you know, Marlboro marijuana cigarettes, though they deny it at the moment. I, I wouldn't rule it out for future. Tom Wainwright, he's an editor at The Economist in London. You can find a link to his story at cprnews.org, part of it reported out of Denver. There's also a link to his conversation with Terry Gross on Fresh Air about narconomics and how Mexican drug cartels run their businesses like Walmart and McDonald's. All that at cprnews.org. Back in a moment on Colorado Matters, this is Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado is headed for a big old traffic jam. That's thanks to a booming population and lagging funding for transportation. In the first of two reports, CPR's Vic Vela examines just how bad congestion could get without more money. Dick Ray has traveled many roads and driven countless miles over several decades in Colorado. I'm old enough to remember when most of this pavement was new, back in the late 50s and 60s when the interstates were built. Ray stopped to chat for a few minutes on his way out of a Denver Conoco station near a 6th Avenue highway exit. He lives in Pagosa Springs and often makes the drive into the city. And he recalls when Colorado roads were in better shape and had a lot fewer vehicles on them. It was a wonderful world and so little maintenance. But those days are long gone. Millions more people live in Colorado than in the 1950s, and there's millions more to come. The state's current population of 5.4 million will seem like the good old days come the year 2040, when the state's population is expected to reach 8 million. That means millions more drivers on Interstate 25, which already can sometimes seem like a parking lot during peak rush hour periods. And for skiers... If you think it's bad going up and down the mountain on Interstate 70 now, just give it a couple of decades. Vehicles in Colorado traveled 49 billion miles on state highways and roads in 2012. That number is expected to reach nearly 70 billion by 2040. But the problem is, there's no money for traffic lanes or transit options. Shailen Batts is the executive director of the Colorado Department of Transportation. Almost all of our budget right now is going to maintain our system. We are not adding capacity uh, in this state. Our roads and highways and bridges are just completely strained and stressed by the amount of use that they have, and we don't have the budget to expand them or even properly maintain them. That's Democratic State Senator Pat Stedman. He sits on the legislature's joint budget committee, and he knows the financial woes the state faces. And it's kind of like the words in small print on side view mirrors. Objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Well, Colorado's road funding issues are worse than they appear. Just listen to these figures. CDOT only has enough money to maintain the state's highway system in its current condition for the next 10 years. After that, who knows? In the next 25 years, projected state revenues will cover just under half of the state's transportation needs, and the department faces a $25 billion revenue shortfall over that period. 
And that's not good with all these folks coming to Colorado. Stedman notes the state posted the second highest growth rate in the nation last year. I think those 100,000 new people that moved here, I think every single one of them brought a car with them. That brings us back to Dick Ray. He sees the deterioration of our roads, and he says the traffic, even in rural mountain areas, is worse than he's ever seen. How much more can we stand? Uh, We need to really seriously reevaluate everything we're doing and how we're doing it. Take some time to ponder that for a bit. You're probably stuck in traffic right now anyway. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. Farming is not easy work, and it can be particularly vexing if you're just getting into it. Young people who buy land often can't afford water for irrigation. That's a problem for rural communities where the hope is that young people can step into the boots of aging farmers. Kate Greenberg studied this. She's with the National Younger Farmers Coalition. She joins us from Durango. Also on the line is 32-year-old Dustin Stein, who manages a farm and ranch in southwest Colorado. And uh, Kate, your new study surveyed um, just under 400 farmers across the western U.S. What did you find are the main concerns for young people who are in agriculture or, I suppose, trying to get into it? Well, we found that the concerns of Western farmers and ranchers in particular who are just entering careers in agriculture are really unique to the arid West. And the, the top three concerns really revolve around water. And these were water access, drought, and climate change. Now, land access was another chief concern, and we see that nationwide. And out here in the West, access to affordable irrigated farmland is really is really uh, what brings those chief concerns together. It's interesting. Your study points out that for many of these young farmers, they've never known farming not in a drought. Uh, that is to say, they, they weren't around when there were wetter times in the West. Right, and I think that, that points to an immense opportunity in the next generation of farmers and ranchers. Uh, you know, already learning to, to grow food and steward land and water under drier, less certain conditions. And, and I think it points toward an opportunity for creative solutions to water scarcity in the West. Of the young farmers that you surveyed, um, were many of them multi-generational, or are they the first in their family to be getting into this? The majority of farmers that we surveyed for this survey in particular are first generation, um, or at least did not, you know, were not raised on a farm or ranch. Uh, and we did, of course, have, have uh, multi-generational farmers as well, but I think this also points to a new generation that's coming up, um, not necessarily being raised in agriculture, but you know, wanting to build a career and a life in farming or ranching. I mean, no one thinks of farming as easy work. Does it surprise you that there are young people entering the field for whom this isn't a family business? Uh, It doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, With the National Young Farmers Coalition, we see this all over the country. It's happening in every state. Uh, Farmers are, you know, are are coming from all walks of life, um, seeing agriculture as a a business, as a way of life, as a, a way of raising their family, growing good food for their community, of managing natural resources, and and building up rural economies. So, uh, you know, I'm not surprised to see it in the West. Um, At the same time, there are some significant barriers standing in the way of of young farmers and ranchers, um, both nationwide and here in Colorado. Yeah, you touched on some of those barriers. And why don't we put those to someone who has faced those barriers firsthand? Again, Dustin Stein, uh, who joins us from Southwest Colorado. Dustin, uh, what you heard from Kate there in terms of 
of water issues, concerns about climate change. Are those top of mind for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think they have always been uh, very obvious challenges, um, even considering getting into farming and ranching. Um, and as, as Kate mentioned, I've never known farming outside of drought. Um, so I think, you know, access to land and good irrigated land um, is probably the biggest concern that beginning farmers and ranchers face. You manage a small farm and ranch in the Mancus Valley, just west of Durango near Mesa Verde National Park. Why the heck did you get into it if there are so many obstacles and, you know, concerns? I think I, uh, I was an athlete when I was young, and I think I learned to be a little masochistic and uh, appreciate a good challenge. <laughs> okay. um, and through my, my college studies, uh, looking at environmental issues and, and climate change and social justice and all these, these big picture topics, uh, I realized that uh, farming and ranching and, and providing food to my community is, is one of the few careers where I can make a living and also feel like I'm benefiting my friends and neighbors and, and my community. And so have you found ways to farm that are not so water-intensive? Because what we heard from Kate and what is reflected in this study is that younger farmers are innovating in this regard, in part because they've never known farming in another, you know, environment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think beginning and younger generation farmers and ranchers um, are quite a bit more progressive in terms of their water use and uh, their cropping systems and how they grow different crops and different animals. Um, And we all look a lot at um, how much water our soil can hold and being able to affect some change there with the organic matter in the soil. Um, And I think part of that comes from um, not being a multi-generational farmer where I didn't inherit any habits or um, any techniques from my parents' or grandparents' generation. Um, So what I have learned getting into it um, has been quite a bit more progressive than if I had grown up on a ranch or a farm. We're talking about young farmers and the challenges and opportunities they face in the West. Our guest is Dustin Stein, who manages a farm and ranch in southwest Colorado, and Kate Greenberg of the National Young Farmers Coalition. Uh, Did you face trouble getting water, Dustin? Um, Just talk to us about the obstacles you've run into in that regard. Yeah, um, where we live... um the water is very hard to uh, to purchase separate from land, so it, it becomes a, a twofold situation where finding access to land um, also involves finding access to land with good water rights on it. Um, the one of the largest issues is the the value for development of land in Colorado, and it's worth quite a bit more to a developer than it is to a farmer and rancher. Um, and so I wasn't sure that I was ever going to be able to afford land with good water on it and uh, was able to uh, meet an older couple who uh, was looking for help managing their property and wanted to see it stay in agriculture. Um, so we joined forces and um, was able to find access to, to great soil and, and fairly senior water rights um, from a couple who, who wanted to see their land stay in productivity. And will they eventually sell it to you? We're not sure at this point. I'm not sure I could afford to buy it from them right now. Yeah, given the market pressures, I suppose. 
Kate, I want to ask a more fundamental question here. In a region that is so prone to drought, should there be as much farming as there is at all? You know, I, I think that's a, it's a big question and touches on a lot of um, points of our life here in Colorado. Um, for one, it, you know, it takes a warm climate to grow food. Um, we have a short growing season here in Colorado, but when you look at what water does for our state, it's so much more than, than just the food production. Water is really the lifeblood of rural communities. It's what draws uh, folks to our state, you know, not just for food, but for open space and for recreation. Um, and agriculture is essential to maintaining that, that landscape. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's one way in which um, it's really critical to keep water in agriculture and keep water on the land. Um, when it comes to food, you know, I think the local food movement is really offering sort of a new perspective on these questions. Um, if we want to keep building, you know, local and regional food systems, um, developing the strength of our food system here in Colorado, then really looking at how we use land and how we value water for the land is, is um, very essential. So that's part of what we found with this uh, report, and we are um, really looking for ways to uh, make sure that others are invested in keeping water in agriculture. Dustin, are there times you think about leaving farming? Absolutely not. Nope. It's, uh, the, it's an amazing quality of life and, and such meaningful work, and um, the longer I do it, the more I fall in love with it, and I plan on doing it until the day I die. You mentioned that the the quality, the composition of soil can be important to saving water. Are there other ways you've managed to do well with less? Yeah, I think, uh, and that probably speaks to uh, a generational benefit um, with technology. Uh, I use a lot of technology to help me figure out how much moisture should theoretically be in the soil. Like what? And use moist, moisture probes um, to build my irrigation system um, or my, my management style. Um, and several times throughout the year, I will shut my irrigation system off when I find that the soil... Uh... Oh, sounds like we might have lost Dustin from southwestern Colorado. But Kate Greenberg, you reflect on some of this in your study, this notion that there are uh, new, exciting ways that farmers are able to, to continue what they're doing uh, by innovating. Um, can you point to a few more of this? Did we lose Kate as well? They've we, Okay. Feeling a bit abandoned here. Why don't we take a break? We'll do that. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News, and I've been speaking with uh, Kate Greenberg. She's Western Coordinator for the National Young Farmers Coalition and Dustin Stein, a farmer and rancher in the Mancos Valley of Colorado. This is CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Greg Bird is living the dream, depending on the day. Take last September 22nd, when the graduate of Grandview High School in Aurora hit the game-winning home run for the New York Yankees as the team tried to qualify for the postseason. Swung on and hit in the air to deep right. That ball is going to be gone! He is a three-run home run into the Yankee bullpen in right. 
Bye-bye, Bertie, in the right field bullpen. The praise came quickly, calling him a phenomenon and clutch beyond his years. But things change quickly in the big leagues. Now, as spring training gets underway, Bert is on the bench. He joined us from the Yankees facility in Tampa. Greg, thanks for being with us. Yeah, appreciate you guys having me. And first off, I want to know, um, did you grow up in Aurora liking the Yankees or hating them? It has to be one or the other, right? (laughs) Well, I moved to Aurora when I was 10 um, from Memphis. So at the time, I was a Cardinals fan. So we'll just leave it at that. (laughs) A Cardinals fan. Okay. And has that changed over the years? I don't know. I I think as I got older, um, like into high school age, I I wasn't as much of a fan of any team. I was more of a fan of just baseball in general. So I just appreciated good baseball. Whatever game was on that night, that's what I enjoyed. And that would have included the Rockies. I read that early on you were taught to emulate another first baseman, and that's Rockies legend Todd Helton. (laughs) Yeah. I had an early coach who who always preached uh, about Todd Helton hitting the ball the other way and uh, just being patient and and just being... uh, a pure hitter, I think. Explain what you mean, hitting the ball the other way. Hitting the ball to all fields. So I always took note of that, I think, and uh, always tried to emulate that a little bit. I learned early on, and I'm still learning that in this game, you can learn a lot by watching other guys. And you don't have to do exactly what they do, but just taking little uh, bits and pieces from everyone's game and, and hmm. kind of seeing what works for yours and uh, just kind of adding it to it. Do you still do that? Oh, yeah, definitely, especially with the guys we have here on this team. We got so many really, really just great baseball players that I get to watch every day, you know, on and off the field, just how they handle themselves, how they go about their business. And uh, so that's been really, really great for me. You know, Greg, there's such humility in that as opposed to kind of going in as a know-it-all and thinking there's nothing you can teach me. Um, Mm -hmm. Do do you think that you're a humble person? Uh, I mean, this game humbles you. So I think early on you learn in baseball that – you know, you're not going to have success every day and you have to learn how to handle failure. So I think this game makes you humble. If you come into it with the wrong attitude, like you know everything, <laughs> it'll it'll kick you right in the butt real quick. So, <laughs> Well, take me back to last August and September. The home run that we described in the introduction was the exclamation point on a really great few weeks for you. Two home runs in just your fifth game. You launched a three-run homer to beat the Orioles a couple of weeks later all at a time when the Yankees were trying to make the playoffs. Uh, what were those couple of weeks like to become an instant Yankees hero? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't call it that. I mean, I just was up there having fun and uh, trying to help those guys win. I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. Um, you're used to watching it on TV, but then when you're you know, in the clubhouse, in the games, everything matters. So just to be a part of that and be able to contribute however I could was a lot of fun for me. I mean, that's what that's what I've been working towards my whole life. What do you mean that in that position, everything matters? I mean, the minor leagues is about development. I would say development first and success second. You know, you're, you're trying to go out and uh, develop into a major league player so that when you get there, you can contribute to the team to winning games because that's what matters in the major leagues is winning, okay. obviously. So... It was just a lot of fun being in that environment where every day, every game, every pitch matters. You call it fun. Was it stressful? <laughs> no, that's fun. I mean, that's that's fun stress, I guess, is how you word it. I don't, I don't know. What's going through your mind when you're hitting a home run? I mean, does, does, is your mind just blank at that moment and it's all kind of physical? Or are you in that moment and can you remember it? Yeah, I mean, you definitely remember them. <laughs> I try not to get, you know, too high or too low. 
obviously your emotions come out sometimes. That's just normal human nature. Who doesn't love home runs? But uh, <laughs> like I said, if you get too high, then it'll kick you right in the butt. But that's interesting. There's a moment then when you're really, really thrilled, perhaps, with your performance. And it sounds like you, Greg Bird, say to yourself, easy there. You know, don't let your head get too big here. Yeah, I mean, I think you learn in baseball, you have to move on. You have to move on from success and you have to move on from failure. So you can't be thinking about your last at bat when you're stepping in the box for your next one or when you go out on defense because then pretty soon the game's by you and you just made an error or didn't do what you wanted to do. So I think you just have to be able to focus on what's going to happen, you know, what's about to happen, the future, the present, more than what you did yesterday or your last at bat or a week ago. You know, I want to say that you have a bright future with the Yankees. You're expected to be the starting first baseman next year. You are out, though, for this season after getting shoulder surgery. And uh, you weren't going to be on the Yankees roster even before that injury. You were headed for the minor leagues because the team's regular first baseman, whom you replaced last season, is back. That's Mark Teixeira. And so you went from, you know, Mr. Clutch in September with people in the Yankees organization saying things like he's going to be good for us for a long time to finding out that you would be back in the minor leagues. How does that in-between space feel? Well, I mean, I, I think first of all, like, obviously there was, yeah, that's what, there's a lot of stuff said, but I was coming to camp to make the team. I, I do like to set that straight. And let me say that um, camp is spring training camp there in Florida. Yeah, 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 yeah. Spring. I, I think everyone's goal is to make the team, whether it's reasonable or not. But the point is you have a strong desire to be yeah, in, in, the ma- in the majors. So how do you... How do you deal with being in that in-between space? Uh, I mean, that, I think that's what you learn in the minor leagues. You experience a lot, and you learn that there's a lot of things you can't control. And if you worry about those things, it's going to eat you up. That's always served me well in baseball and, I think, on and off the field, basically. What is the difference in the lifestyle between a player in the majors and the minors? I mean, is it like the difference between staying at the Ritz and staying at a quality inn? <laughs> Uh, it's, there's, there's definitely a jump. I'll say that. I mean, everyone gets caught up in all that stuff. Um, hotels, planes, food, but to me, it's in the clubhouse. Everyone's there to work. Everything is based around winning that day. I'd say it's more convenient for the player. There's a lot more staff in the clubhouse. There's a lot more coaches, two video guys. And if you know how to use those resources, it's a lot more productive. Okay. You brought it up. Not me. Is the food very different in the, in the majors? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a lot different. I'd say once you get to like AAA, it gets better, a lot better. But before that, I mean, it's just a lot of like pasta and PB&Js and sandwiches and soup. And, uh, you know, you learn to appreciate things, I think, um, which I think is unique about baseball compared to other sports. You're not thrust into first class and four, five-star hotels. You signed with the Yankees very soon after graduating high school in 2011, and you got a a $1.1 million signing bonus. What was the first thing you bought that you couldn't have bought before that? Um, I would say, I mean, the first, I guess, major thing was two or three off seasons ago, I bought a condo here in Tampa um, to be closer to our facility and be able to work out here and get more in the warm weather in winter as you know Colorado's not too baseball friendly in those months so I had a truck and I I kind of did some stuff to the truck but nothing nothing huge right away but you like pimped your ride is that the no I just I had a truck and I put a lift kit on it and put big tires on it and had fun with that so uh, (laughs) nothing nothing crazy I'd say the condo was the first big thing 
Yeah, I mean, the money is different. I think that pressure is different, and not just because you're in the majors, but because you're in New York, right? I mean, that's an intense baseball town, and your team is stacked with veterans who are used yeah. to, to dealing with that, including the man you replaced. Um, you've also met retired players like uh, Derek Jeter. Do, have they given you advice on what it is to play in New York and and how to deal with the pressure of it? Yeah, I mean, everyone has their way of, you know, going about it. What's the best piece of advice they gave you? I think, I mean, I think the thing that always rings true to me is put the team first, you know, and, and I think that'll just serve you well. And I think I learned that early with just my parents and the way I was raised. Well, you recently came back to Grandview High School in Aurora with the Yankees video crew. Um, uh-huh. Teachers there said they were impressed with how, in addition to being a great baseball player in high school, you also took Chinese for three years. And, yeah, yeah, I took, <laughs> yeah, I took Chinese. <laughs> and you were serious about your academics? Yeah. Do you still speak Chinese at all? <laughs> you know, I mean, I know a little bit still. Basic stuff. I really haven't practiced it in years, so um, <laughs> I, I don't really know. I know more Spanish probably than I do Chinese. Knowing what I know now, I would have probably taken Spanish. But at the time, <laughs> I was a freshman. You don't, yeah, you have no idea what's going to happen, obviously. And uh, my dad was doing business in China, so he was like, ah, take Chinese. You know, it'd serve you well. But I'm guessing the Spanish might come in handy given that there are a fair number of Spanish speakers, I mean, in baseball, but also on the Yankees. Definitely, definitely could have used a couple years of Spanish in high school. You flew under the radar before the draft, um, that big signing bonus notwithstanding. One scout said that playing in Denver hurt you, partly because it's hard to scout given the unpredictable weather, which you've made reference to, and partly because there's this assumption that playing at altitude inflates your stats any advice for high schoolers in Colorado who'd like to replicate your success? Don't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's easy. Yeah, I mean, scouting is not a direct, it's not an exact science, you know. It's, it's tough. What those guys do is tough. I just think it's hard to look at someone and know exa- obviously know exactly what they're going to be. So, it, like I told you, it serves you well in the minor leagues, just learning to control what you can control. Baseball's hard enough, so if you're thinking about the scout and the the thin air while you're playing in high school, you got a major problem. So my advice is don't listen to them. I'm jealous of how zen you are, and you just seem to be really even keeled. Um, before you go, make the case to this Colorado audience, why should they root for the Yankees this year? Because um, I, I don't think there's a better franchise in sports. Just the history and the class, and um, I just think there's there's no better organization to root for. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Greg Bird plays for the New York Yankees. He graduated from Grandview High in Aurora. And finally today, new music from the Carpe Diem String Quartet. They're known for playing traditional classical fare like Beethoven and Schubert, alongside fiddle tunes and spirituals. The group's new release features the work of Reza Vali, an Iranian composer who uses traditional Persian sounds. Charles Weatherby is Carpe Diem's first violinist. He's also in the Boulder Philharmonic and is a professor of violin at the University of Colorado. Weatherby says Volley's music forced the string quartet to change its definition of playing in tune because Persian music contains notes that Western music does not. Just where do I put my fingers? Because, yes, it's, it ain't 
B and it ain't B flat. It's somewhere in between. And until you start to hear it um, a little bit, you're really f feeling like a fish out of water. Rezavali's album The Book of Calligraphy, featuring Weatherby and the Carpe Diem String Quartet, is out now. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for being with us. <laughs>